Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. I wanted to start off today's podcast to honor the untimely passing of Igor Leventhal. He was an absolute legend in the mining industry with a career that spanned more than 30 years as a board member and holding senior positions with major mining companies such as Homestake Mining Company and International Corona Corporation. From all of us here at Planet Microcap and on behalf of the Kraft family, we want to express our sincerest condolences and sending lots of love to the Leventhal family, his wife, Jessica, sons, Misha and Casey, Misha's wife, Evan, and Gennady Leventhal, Igor's father. Be sure to subscribe to our recently launched Substack, the Planet Microcap newsletter for free at microcapnewsletter.substack.com. I'll be sharing all recent podcast episodes from Planet Microcap and Due Diligence. Plus, every Sunday, I put out our weekly Microcap wrap to show how the Microcap space has performed every week and compared to the broader markets based on data from the Microcap Review Index. Again, to subscribe for free, go to microcapnewsletter.substack.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Michael Melby founder and portfolio manager at Gate City Capital Management. I've met Michael at multiple microcap club leadership summits, where I think he's participated in multiple stock pitches at those events. Uh, I'd been wanting to chat with Michael for a while now on the pod, and I'm stoked that we can make it happen. Michael is a deep value microcap investor. Simply put, we spend our time breaking down what that means to him and going through some examples that demonstrate that philosophy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 230 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Michael Melby. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is, uh, you know, this is a long overdue one. I've known Michael for a long time. I've seen him uh, uh, do some stock pitches at various Microcap Club investor summits. And, you know, we've always, you know, I've always wanted to have him on the show. So I'm really excited that uh, we found some time to make it happen. So uh, joining me today is Michael Melby, founder and portfolio manager at Gate City Capital Management. Michael, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, nice to say hello again and uh, appreciate the uh, opportunity and the interest. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Listen, I, I had to have you on, especially right now. I mean, you know, you sent me your Q2 letter, just or your Q1 letter, um, uh, you know, going over how you performed this last quarter. You're one of the few funds that actually had a, a positive return, not just a positive return. I think I think I saw the numbers like 18, about a little over 18%, right? Is Am I right there? Yeah, we've, uh, I feel fortunate that it, we've delivered a positive return to our investors in, in the first quarter. And um, I had uh, a couple of positions that performed well for us and uh, tried to uh, adhere to uh, our inv- investment principles and philosophy and uh, feel fortunate that uh, at least through Q1, uh, that's resulted in a, in a good result for our investment partners. So um, yeah, that's right. Uh, so feel good about it. Awesome. Good. See, I, I, ca- I caught, I caught you at a good time. Now I'm just, um, <laughs> so, 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 Michael, I want to uh, we'll we'll get into all that a little bit later. But I wanted to dig deeper into your background and where your passion for investing began. So, you know, was it was it uh, like some of the folks that have been on here, where uh, you know you found that one book and then aha, like I'm I'm into invest. But in all seriousness, love to know where that passion began. Yeah, and uh, I guess it goes back uh, probably to uh, me growing up. Uh, my father was a high school business teacher and taught a general business course. At, uh, at the local high school. And uh, in that course, he, he had a, a, a small unit on stock picking. And uh, at that point, he had, a, he had a little contest they still do today where he would throw a dart at uh, uh, essentially a Wall Street Journal page and have the rest of the class pick uh, stocks that they thought would, would outperform for the semester for the year. And uh, uh, I guess uh, the, my interest in investing started there. And uh, I guess it's expanded over time. I've always uh, been, I guess, more uh, my strengths on the analytical side and I like digging into the numbers and uh, uh, the accounting and things like that. And uh, I guess combine that with uh, some, some things that I, I think are very neat about the public markets and, and part of capitalism in general is that uh, the work that you're able to do in terms of research or other things to evaluate uh, where the fair value of a company might differ from what uh, the market perceives as fair value to put that um, uh, to put that research to work to allocate capital to those ideas. And I think uh, that helps 
uh, create a system where capital is allocated to uh, areas that are undervalued and uh, adds a lot of value to people, both businesses over time and ideally to our investors over time. So I think uh, uh, just the interest in, in investing kind of stems from there is it's a, it's a neat way to combine that work. And uh, in terms of microcap companies, I've always found uh, the space interesting and I guess uh, started uh, really looking at uh, those types of companies uh, as an undergrad. And um, I guess uh, uh, coming out of, of school my senior year, just invested some of the, the signing bonus I got to, ahead of uh, the full-time, uh, upcoming full-time job in in some microcap companies. And uh, I guess there are a couple of things that have drawn my interest uh, to that space. And uh, uh, I think it, it relates to the idea that uh, uh, from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, you're able to look at a lot of companies that others might not know about. I think uh, that increases the likelihood that someone doing research can add value um, when there are fewer people look, looking at it. I think uh, structurally, there are a lot of reasons why with microcap companies, why that's the case. And uh, you and your, your listeners are, are probably familiar with it, but uh, in terms of sell-side research, just a lot less out there. Um, microcap companies are smaller, so do uh, um, generate fewer trading commissions generally than larger companies and uh, do fewer deals generally than larger companies. And from a buy-side standpoint, uh, the amount of uh, the size of companies just limits the a lot of the, the top investors from investing in the space. And uh, so I, I found that interesting from an intellectual standpoint. It's an area where I think a motivated researcher can add value. And you've seen a number of instances with, with top investors over time finding value in the space. And uh, one other thing that, that um, we like to do is, is meet with management teams and uh, have found it a lot easier um, for senior managers to meet with investors when, when they're working with smaller companies. And a lot of times you find um, senior management that's been with the company a long time and might hold a large uh, stake in it. And uh, you can learn a lot just by, by, by talking to those groups and, um, and uh, understanding their motivation. So a few reasons, uh, I guess, uh, probably segued a little bit there, but uh, hopefully that gives you an idea where the interest started and, and some of the parts of the micro cap space that uh, uh, make it attractive. Absolutely. I mean, Michael, I, I, I'm, I, you gave me so much, uh, so many places to go here. I, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I don't know where to start first, but I guess uh, my first, my first question to, for you is, you know, you, you mentioned how, you know, you basically talk from a, from, you know, more of a philosophical level about, you know, some of the, the reasons why, you know, um, you, uh, people end up loving microcaps. But when you were first getting your start in microcaps, I mean, did you did you read something? Did you see something somewhere and say, "Oh, there's clearly a, a an, an advantage as a retail investor, as an individual investor in microcaps"? So I'm going to now go look there, or were you already looking at a few stocks and then realized afterwards, like, "Oh, well, this clearly like why aren't why aren't there more people looking at this?" And then and then came to that realization of like, "Oh, there is a clear uh, advantage that I have here." Yeah, I, just looking back, I can't remember the clear delineation on, on what separated out. I, uh, um, uh, and uh, just kind of talking about the, the philosophy again, we're uh, deep value investors here, which 
um, might, might be different than a lot of other kind of folks in the microcap space. But um, I, I thought a lot of the attributes of deep value investing and, and uh, at that time too, I think uh, just doing, doing regular screens in terms of valuation screens, a lot of microcap type companies would, would appear. And uh, I think there are a number of reasons why microcaps should not trade at the same valuation level as, as large cap companies. And we can go, go through some of those as well. But uh, uh, just our philosophy, we're, we're value investors and margin of safety investors. And in general, look for companies that uh, we think on a discounted cash flow basis, trade at a significant discount to what the market price is, and also provide a margin of safety where in a liquidation type analysis or environment, and I don't mean kind of a bankruptcy, um, throw everything out right away, but in an organized process that um, we, we look for companies trading very close to what an organized liquidation of the company would yield. And I uh, think from that combination that um, we limit our potential downside while providing our investors with um, a significant amount of potential upside. And uh, as looking through it, I, I think more of those opportunities present themselves uh, the smaller you get in company size. And that's not to say they, they can't occur in, in mega cap stocks as well, but um, uh, have found, I, I think our advantage is finding them in the micro cap space as uh, they tend to be more apparent and uh, tend to last for a little longer as well. So that's, uh, that's our experience. Uh, overall, we think uh, the investment philosophy of the team can be incorporated into a lot of different areas of the market, but uh, the, the opportunity set is greater, greatest for us in, in the market. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. So when you, take me back to when you first started investing in microcap stocks. You know, you said you took your, you know, your first signing bonus and you put it in a few stocks. You know, what was your, what was your strategy at the time? You know, um, did, what was it that got you hooked? I mean, you can name the names if you want that you first put, you know, got got active in. But you know, love love to hear. Take me back to that time frame, and then of course how that evolved over time. Yeah, I, I might just uh, uh, kind of give you my my career path as well, and that that might frame kind of the, the interest in philosophy as well. But uh, uh, went went to undergrad, majored in finance at Notre Dame, graduated in two thousand three, and then went to work at Deutsche Bank in their debt capital markets group. So. Uh, not not an equity um, uh, background originally, but uh, I think it gave me a good background in uh, fixed income markets and then also uh, financial derivatives. And interestingly, we we look for companies that are usually unlevered with very little debt, and uh, also companies that uh, we we don't short anything, we don't uh, use any leverage. And I, I think what that experience provided was an an, an aversion to those. Uh, types of instruments and, and seeing, um, uh, especially in the 
2008-2009 timeframe, how those got a lot of people into trouble. Uh, then I went to work at the Notre Dame Investment Office, was uh, there from 2007 through 2009, focused on uh, fixed income risk management and natural resources. Uh, left there in 2009 to get uh, my MBA at the University of Chicago and uh, graduated in 2011. And uh, at that time formed the entity, which is Gate City Capital Partners, um, and uh, put together a portfolio of microcap value companies. And uh, after that, worked as a long-only research analyst for about three years at a firm called Crystal Rock Capital and left in uh, uh, June of 2014 to launch Gate City Capital to outside investors and spend my whole focus on it. Uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, going back to college, kind of the initial focus. Um, and and uh, I, I don't think there are any kind of good case studies that came out of that. I think it was more of a focus on uh, the attributes of the space. And, uh, and I think that only grew in some early, I guess, companies I invested in uh, included Barnes & Noble at the time um, and uh, uh, predecessor, predecessor to a service corporation on the penal side cemetery and funeral home site. So um, uh, Barnes and Noble, interesting one. And uh, I, uh, they, they, um, they, they had a spinoff or two after that as well, which I think uh, would be interesting. But um, uh, in any event, uh, look for companies that uh, have good free cash flow yields, uh, good balance sheets, and that's extended uh, over time as I continue my career. Also, decided uh, to branch off on so what? So then, what ultimately led to your to your wanting to then f- uh, uh, go full time with Gate City Capital Management in 2014? Yeah, I think there are a few things. Uh, when, when I launched it, um, it was subscale and uh, uh, essentially my own capital, and then um, capital from three or four friends. It was under half a right around half a million in size when when it was launched, and so not not of scale and. Uh, when I talk to other investors who are considering the path, I think there, there are two important things to uh, to consider when when launching your own firm, and one is to have a strategy or an investment process that you think is um, superior to anything else out there, and it's it's not meant to to be said in a boastful way, but uh, if if you don't have that conviction in the process that you've developed, and you're going to go out and market your strategy to your friends, family, and outsiders. Uh, if you don't have something that you think can provide value for them more than what is already out there, then, then what is the point of what you're doing? Um, and uh, there can be a, there are a lot of different ways to uh, be a successful investor and everyone's strengths and uh, weaknesses are different. I think it's important. And, and what I thought I had at that time was, a, an investment philosophy and process that was different than almost everything else out there. Uh, concentrate portfolio, micro-cap value companies, uh, long-term investors, um, and uh, not really a scalable strategy, which I think has, has thrown a lot of people off that, that would like to do something similar. And so I thought uh, uh, that process combined with a deep uh, research-focused process, including company visits, uh, was... Uh, something that uh, could add value for a long time for our investors. 
And uh, so in addition to having something that uh, an area where I thought I had a sustainable competitive advantage, uh, the other aspect is from a finance or, or economic side, being comfortable with a um, stream of income that is going to be much more volatile and early on for me anyhow, not, not something that, that uh, was sustainable from a business model standpoint or that had to grow a fair amount. So um, what I wanted before starting off was both uh, the vast majority of my net worth invested in Gate City and also uh, to have reserves of cash on the side to both manage the expenses of running a fund and my own personal expenses for a period of, of three plus years. And I wanted to take away all the motivation of, of accepting capital that wasn't a good fit for me long-term and for our other investment partners long-term. And also uh, remove to the extent possible the pressure to deliver monthly returns or short-term performance. And so I felt that uh, three years was appropriate for uh, to, to indicate to others that it's a long enough time frame where um, uh, the, uh, the, the success of the uh, strategy could be observed by outsiders. And uh, it was also a period where I thought after that period of time, uh, through word of mouth, through um, uh, a regular internal um, marketing program that, uh, that uh, I could build a, a, a list of investment partners or a, a, a pool of assets essentially that would be long-term in nature that would match the duration of, of our investments and uh, serve as a, a great long-term pool of capital to enact the strategy. And I, I think those aspects are important. Um, and I like to others that uh, the uh, pressures and stresses of managing uh, something where the vast majority of your wealth is, uh, where your close friends and potentially family wealth is invested alongside of you, that uh, if you don't have those two uh, aspects, um, if you're not comfortable with them up front, it can be much more challenging and you're much more prone to um, chase returns or chase strategies where you might not have a competitive so uh, th those are the two things that I was comfortable with in, in 2014. And uh, when I talk to others, encourage them to be comfortable with before uh, looking to uh, go out on your own. I mean, that's a, it's a, that's a really different approach, right? Um, you know, basically, I don't want to say putting a cap, but I mean, you're probably not actively out there look, you know, raising capital for your fund because you're always like, look, no, this is where I'm comfortable being so that I can continue to execute on the strategy that I want to do. What happened, but what happens if, I mean, listen, you, I think in the, in your Q122, you know, you've had over 800% uh, 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 net annualized return since you launched in 2011, in 2011, you know, so how do you, what do you do if you keep, performing well i mean how, how do you how do you manage all, all, all of that you know as, yeah, as as the assets continue to grow yeah it, it's a good 
there was problems to have, and we feel fortunate that, that uh, <laughs> I'm currently facing that problem. Um, and uh, uh, I guess just to um, kind of go into and, and to uh, expand on our team here as well, but uh, I've been fortunate over time. I started off, it was just myself from 2014, and uh, had some had some very good interns during the time, but basically uh, uh, hired our, our first uh, full-time employee partner for me, uh, Nick Bodner, in early 2017. And then uh, Chad Kohorst in, in August of 2017, and he served as our, our CFO, COO, and has also helped out on the research side. And uh, Nick's been focused full-time on, on research. He uh, is part of uh, MicroCap Club as well and, and was a, a big contributor on Seeking Alpha before uh, joining us here. And more recently, Harry Sowers just joined earlier this week, the team. So um, from a... Um, growth standpoint, then I uh, feel fortunate that um, with um, more assets, I uh, had the ability to bring on some great long-term partners. Um, in, in terms of size, we um, uh, I'll just talk at a high level. We've agreed not to grow to a, a size of over $150 million in assets. And uh, the, the problem comes along, I'm not going to kind of give our, our uh, asset value here, but uh, should performance continue to, to be positive going forward, we, we will have decisions to make in, in terms of keeping the fund at a, a size that we think provides the best absolute returns for our investors um, and manage that against um, uh, with, with uh, performance growth uh, that, that can put those two into conflict. And so um, looking for the best ways um, and, and thinking through that in the future, the best ways to manage that in, in terms of um, providing our investors with, with the best opportunities uh, while also being, being cognizant that um, uh, they might want to grow with, with the funds. So uh, trying to balance those, those things as, as we think about going forward and um, uh, in a way that allows us to continue to enact our strategy and ideally deliver positive absolute returns for our investors over a long period of time. Got it. I, I like how you started off that answer. Like, hey, man, there's worse problems to have, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and to your point, a, a lot of the, the largest, a lot of value investors started in the micro cap space and have evolved over time. We think uh, uh, some of the attributes I, I mentioned before in terms of our investment process adhere uh, best to the micro cap space and provide us with the best opportunities to deliver good returns over time. And uh, then uh, it's a balancing act as the larger you get, the more difficult it is to both build positions and uh, more difficult it is to close out of positions. And um, uh, also limits uh, just purely the, the size of, of companies that are appropriate for your fund. And so uh, right. I want to maintain as much flexibility as we can there and stay focused on what we do best. Um, so um, kind of uh, when the time comes, we'll have some, I won't say difficult, but uh, important decisions to make in terms of balancing those two aspects. 
For sure. And, and listen, I, I very much appreciate that because, you know, I've been doing the podcast long enough where, you know, I've had a few folks on here who, you know, started off as individual investors, they started their fund and now they've performed. So I like Connor, you know, is you know, yeah. first one that comes to mind. Right. You know, so it, it's, it's really cool and interesting to see that growth and, and then how you're now going to put together a strategy of like, okay, we're, you know, we're growing a lot. We need to, <laughs> we need to kind of figure out what we're going to do here. Um, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm just, um, I, I, I want, I hope, I hope for you and the firm's sake that it, you continue to have to deal with this uh, problem. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, all right, let's dig into your, your, into your microcap evaluation strategy. Uh, you know, as you said, you're more on the deep value side, you know, so uh, you mentioned a few of the, the metrics and some of the things that you look for just at the outset. So I'd love to maybe kind of get a full picture of what those things are and then what are some of your next steps are as you're, you know, okay, we're going to start, uh, do a starter position, you know, build that portfolio, build that position. So love to hear that strategy there. Yeah. Happy to. And um, uh, we'll, we'll try to address everything you, you talked about there, but if I get sidetracked, uh, uh, revert me back, but um, yeah, uh, it starts with idea generation. And uh, we like to say that our best uh, idea generation is companies we've always looked we've already looked at. So um, um, we have a, a database of 250 to 350 companies. And most of those we've uh, taken notes on. Um, a lot of them we've had management meetings with and have come, um, we do, uh, I guess, as, as we go through our diligence process, we produce full, um, uh, full models across income statements, balance sheets, cash flows that, that produce a DCF analysis where, where we come up with what we think, both the intrinsic value and then also the floor value of, of each company. And uh, we, we maintain those in a database and, and observe them over time. And uh, uh, they become more or less attractive uh, depending on what the price does and maybe depending on, on how the company uh, executes or any changes to intrinsic value that we see over time based on um, uh, factors e either in their industry or, or in the broader market. And uh, so when looking at a company, we want at least 50% upside, uh, five zero, um, calculate on a DCF analysis. And I can go into that a little bit as well, but then also minimum, minimal downside. And, uh, uh, but there are a lot of companies that we might not have looked at. So uh, uh, on a weekly basis, we do uh, three screens. One is a 52 week low screen. One is an enterprise value EBITDA screen. And one is a market cap to property, plant, and equipment screen. And so uh, they, they might be apparent, but except for the last one, uh, the first one is designed to find companies that are currently performing badly, uh, that uh, uh, there might be poor selling or other things that uh, have, have driven the price down. Uh, the second one is a general valuation screen where we're looking for companies trading at uh, a low multiple of EBITDA, which uh, we then translate into free cash flow. The third one is for companies that have invested uh, ideally cyclical companies that invested a lot of capital in the past and are not getting a return on that capital today. Uh, with the idea that um, in a cyclical market, um, if they have made relatively good investments over time, that then cyclicality should reverse at some point. So uh, those are uh, kind of the weekly screens. And when something comes up that catches our interest, we'll then start the, the due diligence process. Uh, we also uh, have we follow a lot of the um, information on public sites. Uh, Nick, Nick has a very strong Seeking Alpha uh, uh, network. 
and uh, things like Microcap Club and Value Investing Club, uh, where uh, ideas of others that uh, look attractive, that we're able to observe those and then uh, do our own work on them. Then we have a, a list of, um, I guess, investors that we exchange ideas with um, over time and try to be open to uh, others, uh, young and old, that, that might have ideas that, that seem interesting. Um, in our process, if, uh, if something looks interesting, we, we go through the financial statements and the publicly available information, uh, go through the proxy and try to understand the uh, incentives of management and uh, the incentives of the board. Um, and um, uh, if the company has transcripts, uh, go through that and any prior investor presentations and try to do the same for the industry as well and uh, understand uh, what drives cash flow and um, uh, how competitive the industry is, the advantages or disadvantages the company might have. And uh, then we normally create a, a model. Um, we fill it in by hand, uh, it's time consuming, but uh, we wanna be sure of the financials. We wanna, it, it's interesting to observe how um, different metrics have changed over time. And uh, a lot of times companies put things in the footnotes that, that might not be apparent, we think, to, um, to investors that uh, simply do a download process. And we wanna be responsible for all that information and uh, know what's in it. So uh, spent a fair amount of time with that and it, it's created a, what I think is a substantial asset for our company having um, north of 250 companies modeled out. And those aren't all up to date every quarter, but creates a system where uh, if something becomes interesting later that we can update in pretty short order. Um, after creating that, we normally reach out to company management um, and uh, look to see if we can set up uh, around a 45 minute call just to get to know them, understand the cash characteristics of the business, how they make money and uh, uh, expand on the competitive nature of the business. And um, uh, depending on how the call goes, then we'll, we'll look to uh, set up uh, probably an in-person meeting. And we've had the, especially pre-COVID, we had a, a requirement that all before making an investment, we want to meet with company management, uh, ideally at their place of business. And uh, we're not experts on operations or anything like that, but we um, think we get a lot more information and understanding out of meeting people in person than uh, we do over the phone or, or uh, through other means. And um, that also gives us a chance to see how the office is, to see how, uh, if they have a plant there, to see how things are set up. And again, uh, even though we're not uh, experts on how things work, you get a pretty good idea um, how employees act, uh, the equipment, how things are taken care of. Um, and uh, in that meeting, I guess, um, there, there is a, a counter argument and I get it in terms of in-person meetings that management um, is promotional. They'll tell you what you want to hear um, and uh, that they're motivated not to, uh, uh, to be biased, I guess. And uh, we agree with that and in a trip, we make, I mean, you could read a lot of annual reports in that time. Um, and the argument I have, or I guess the, the philosophy is that, uh, especially in, in micro caps where um, management can have um, an outsized impact on how the company does, meaning that individual or individuals in person is very important. 
And uh, we tend to look for three things, uh, intelligence, work ethic, and integrity. And um, usually have uh, myself and at least one or two other of our, our partners. And for the most part, we come to the same general conclusion on those three. Uh, there can be differences, but um, um, we tend to try to avoid people that are overly promotional and uh, think we are fairly good at identifying the integrity aspect. Um, not to say we're, we're perfect there, but we think uh, that, that meeting and getting some different perspectives on each individual is, is helpful. Um, so after that, um, we uh, use any information there to, to refine what we think the company's worth, both on an upside and downside basis. And I, I should hi highlight as well, um, uh, while it, it can be helpful to understand what the upside is, the, the in-person meetings is really helpful in, in determining our downside. And uh, we, we base a lot of that on either current assets, uh, cash, receivables, inventory, but also on uh, the value of properties. And uh, seeing things in person, um, uh, there are situations, and uh, maybe I won't name names here, but where in-person meetings indicate that the assets that we thought should be in place are not in the quality or in, in the state that we were hoping for, uh, which uh, can, can be a big uh, reduction in what uh, we think liquidation or, or that type of value is for companies. Um, so um, once we have, um, for each of our portfolio companies and, and each company that, that's close on our watch list, we have both an, uh, uh, our price target, which is based on a DCF analysis and the, the downside. We compare uh, that on an absolute basis. So we'll take potential upside, say it's 50% and potential downside, say that's 10%. Uh, that's a five to one ratio. And we force rank the portfolio companies in all possible targets based on that ratio. And uh, uh, it, it might be a simplistic way to do it. And ideally the odds of reaching intrinsic value are a lot higher than uh, falling to fair, falling to liquidation value. But we think, um, I think in general, people are overly optimistic about their, the companies they look at. And it, it, it uh, I, I think provides us with a way to uh, really focus on the downside there as well. Based on that, we'll uh, size the portfolio. Uh, there, there are constraints in terms of liquidity and, and, and other things, but we look to have it so our companies with the highest upside versus downside ratios are the highest uh, weightings in the portfolio. We target around 15 companies. Um, we will go up to 20% in any one individual company. If, if we're up that high, we look to have uh, situations where we think downside is very, very limited. Um, and uh, I guess after, well, I'll talk a little bit about our DCF analysis. I recognize that uh, the, the critiques of that versus other valuation metrics um, and, and the garbage in, garbage out uh, possibilities there. Um, it's my philosophy that a company is only worth what cash it's able to generate. And that's what the value should be. And in terms of relative value, try to have the mentality that we're owning the company. And we're owning it for the long term, and we're not owning it to to sell it to someone when their mentality might change. And uh, trying to predict other investors' sentiment in terms of buying or selling assets at different points in time, um, 
with all the different motivations that they have, I think is very difficult. And so uh, we apply generally a 12.5% discount rate that hasn't changed. It doesn't change regarding regardless of when interest rates go up or down. As I, I think that in general is the return I want for a micro cap type company. Uh, we can bring that up for companies that might have other risks that, that we think um, would raise the, the return requirements that we would have. But uh, uh, then try to uh, project out what we think uh, normalized profit is uh, when they get there and uh, pay close attention to taxes and uh, think about uh, the return requirements from a cash standpoint, if we were to own the business, what we'd want to have. And uh, it's created a situation where uh, a lot of our companies have cash flows um, that are not necessarily a lot of their cash flows are in the terminal value. So look for companies that provide uh, um, payback periods in a relatively short period of time. And I think uh, using a relatively high discount rate uh, reduces the risk that, uh, you know, you're waiting all your cash flows in, in the very out years. But um, that's kind of the valuation process. And I guess one other thing in our process that we do, we tend to go to annual meetings. And uh, a lot of those have uh, gotten virtual during the, the uh, pandemic and, and rightfully so. But uh, we, we found it valuable to meet with the entire, usually the entire management team there and at least uh, in prior times, the entire board of directors is there. And I think we established Gate City as a long-term investor, uh, one that's done work, one that cares about the outcome of the company. And uh, I think that's helped in, in terms of building our relationships, both with management and, and with the board. And uh, I think those can be very valuable in, in the years to come. And probably, Hopefully touched on a lot, but probably missed a, a few too, and maybe created some some additional questions. So I'll, I'll I'll pause there. Well, no, that was that was that, that was great. So th- thank you for that complete overview. Um, you know, how many new ideas do you tend to to open uh, in, in any given year? I mean, I'm sure it depends. Uh, you know, depending on the time frame. But you know, how how often are you adding new new ideas to the portfolio? Yeah, our uh, average hold timer. Uh, turnovers a little under uh, every two years. Um, so turnovers 0.45 or 0.5 or so. Uh, so our average holding period is right around two years. Uh, we might add one or two ideas a quarter. It's probably on average uh, the pace of adding. And I mean, what's what's been interesting? Let's say in the last two years, you know, since COVID started, you know, I'm not asking for individual names, of course, but, you know, what what have, you know, now that everything transitioned from how you used to do things where, you know, you go visit. And yeah, things are opening up a bit now, but, you know, it's not like you were sitting on your hands during those two years. So what has that experience been like? And then what's what's been interesting to you over the last two and a half years? Yeah, especially early in COVID and, and recognizing it's a very, very uh, bad time for, for people throughout the world. Um, it was challenging, as, as you mentioned, a lot of our, the, the way we had done things had to be put on hold for a while. And uh, uh, I think uh, it, it was one spot where I, I critique kind of our internal process as well. But in general, our, our thought was that we still wanted, we, we want to invest for the next three to five years. That uh, it, while very difficult to tell how long the, the pandemic would go on, that uh, things would end eventually, and uh, we wanted to maintain our investment approach. And we did relatively, and, and maybe where I would have changed things a little bit, we did relatively little 
short term. I, I, maybe I won't refer to it as short term, but um, in in terms of COVID beneficiaries and the companies that would benefit from COVID, uh, we took a longer term view and kind of said things would get back to normal eventually, and we'd want to own companies that uh, we think on a normalized cash flow basis would do well over the long term. So uh, I guess just going back and our didn't change a whole lot. Um, just based on our, our metrics or our criteria that I mentioned before, it's probably worth noting some of the things that, that go along with that. But uh, most of our companies have and continue to own some sort of real asset. So that's included land, buildings, property, and equipment. And we find uh, that valuable for a few reasons, and they tend to be old, old economy type businesses as well. But um, uh, we like that from, from an idea where you're, you're not dealing with variable costs, where, where you control your own destiny with a lot of your assets. And uh, from an inflationary standpoint, it's been an area that uh, I've had concern about for a long time. It's, it's in the, the news a lot today. But um, uh, having assets that should go up in value along with inflation, uh, that was, is, is a very valuable, for lack of better words, edge against uh, a bad or an inflationary type environment. Uh, we also look for companies with very little debt. So uh, um, the vast majority of our companies are net cash. And uh, if a company does have debt, we have two simple rules that we want to apply uh, to them. And that is that they have the ability and willingness to pay off that debt. So um, uh, there are a lot of leverage ratios that are thrown out there and generally shy away from those types of situations as especially with micro cap companies. And it might go back to kind of my dead capital markets days, but it's very tough to raise money when you can't, when the market's bad. And uh, that can create a lot of refinancing risk. And uh, uh, in addition to the operating risk that the company's going through in that bad environment, so from a margin of safety standpoint, try to uh, avoid that leverage or refinancing risk by, by avoiding leverage of companies that can't pay off their debt. And uh, we think the, I think those two rules are good for not companies, but people and governments and everything else. And it's not always applied to. Um, but uh, the other thing, we, we try to keep things generally simple in terms of industries. Um, uh, we're, we're agnostic, but uh, tend to avoid tech companies over time is uh, they generally don't have the real asset component. They can have a lot of cash, which can provide a margin of safety. It's not what I'm best at, but uh, there are instances where, where we'll look at it. We tend to avoid financials just from a debt standpoint. Um, they, their business models tend to involve leverage, and uh, it's very tough from an asset standpoint. Um, when a lot of those assets, for instance, in a bank are, are loans or with an insurance company might be investments, what, what they're actually invested in. Um, and so I guess um, um, coming out of or, or in the, the midst of the pandemic, we, we did a lot of work on companies that we thought would be around for a while that had owned assets that we thought were valuable and companies uh, in a lot of cases that, that we thought were negatively impacted by um, COVID-19 and, and the pandemic. And so uh, it's interesting. It, um, I, I think going back to kind of my initial comments and having conviction in your investment process, early on uh, in 2020, the, the 
the strategy that, that we did did not perform well. And so you had a lot of companies and a lot of companies, either on the tech side or other companies that might have their business models approved by, by having people stay at home. Uh, the, those weren't the companies we owned. And so we, we lagged for a fair uh, amount of 2020 and uh, uh, stuck to, I guess, our, our thoughts and, and our process where we wanted to own companies that with a margin of safety with limited debt and industries we understand and, and invest for the long term. Um, I think uh, sticking to those, to that philosophy, while, while it wasn't the best in in kind of the, the first half or even the first three or three quarters of, of 2020, um, helped us uh, do well um, later in the year and then through 2021 and early. So um, try not to, to change much and, and hopefully we're on the way to uh, where our diligence process or the one we've enacted historically can, can be returned to. Um, and um, the macro environments obviously changed here as well, but uh, no big changes in terms of the companies we invest in or our stellar approaches as we enter to potentially uh, a more challenging time in the market. Sure. Hey, my God, you know, not, another thing I'm noticing, you know, looking at you sent me your investor document, you know, you have a few case studies in here. Um, and also in there, you mentioned that it seems like you like asset heavy businesses, right? Um, physical asset heavy business. Am I, am I off? Am I right there? Uh, that's, that's right. And it, it goes back to kind of the margin of safety aspect. And, um, and uh, also the idea that uh, over time, uh, things, a lot of those things should appreciate in value. Uh, it's not saying it will, but um uh, we think it it provides a, a nice inflationary hedge, and it's it's generally to make the decision to buy versus rent something is uh, is a decision I think people generally don't take lightly, and it indicates uh, 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 a level of conviction, at least on management standpoint, that an investment should be made. Just want to so uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I bring it up because I mean, you know. Here you are sticking to your knitting with, you know, we like asset heavy versus, you know, some of these tech SaaS names that just, you know, went nuts during, you know, once once everything kind of took back off in 2020. So that must have been a, an interesting time where you had to guy where you guys were probably looking yourselves in the mirror of like, okay, uh, where are we? Are we sure? <laughs> are we sure this is where we want to continue going down? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, uh, I think. Technological innovation has made people's lives a whole lot better, and being able to um, invest in that is, is very rewarding and has improved a lot of lives. Um, and uh, that, that being said, it's probably not the area that that I think I can add the most value to. And there are other investors out there that that, that are better than that, better than I am, at uh, recognizing new ideas and new trends and things like that. But um, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, overall that. Um, the rotation that uh, that seemed to be apparent to me, and at least from 2017 through 2020, of a rotation into uh, asset light businesses, and I recognize the return on capital uh, can be very, very good there. Uh, but also recognize that economic environments can be much worse than the periods they were from 2017 through 2000. 
20 or, or would pick whatever time frame you want. And uh, during those bad periods, we want to have the longevity that uh, we can be around for a long time and uh, the operating leverage of, of, of low capital intensity businesses works both ways as well. So, um, um, yeah, I, I think overall we try to uh, pick companies that I think um, have the, the staying power to, to be there for a long time and uh, physical assets uh, provide some additional assurances for me that that, that will take place. So now, so now you're, what you're trying to tell me is that, you know, now you're actually looking at asset like businesses as they become out of favor, of course, right? Like that clearly. It's, uh, it's something we talked about a lot more. And um, uh, I don't think we're, we're there to make that rotation yet. But uh, I think uh, it's something we're keeping an eye on, especially as uh, uh, companies with um, uh, very strong competitive advantages there, uh, good cash balances. Um, uh, and strong balance sheets start to trade at free cash flow multiples that uh, are similar to companies that, that we've historically looked at. So um, we've had those conversations internally. Very good. So uh, take me back to an investing experience, you know, uh, either prior to founding Gate City or even, you know, since founding it, that would you say, you know, either changed your career the most or, you know, proved like, okay, this is how I want to invest or like, oh, this is how I definitely do not want to invest in microcaps. Yeah. Um, I guess the name we've owned for quite a while and one we continue to own is a company called AMREP Corporation. And uh, the ticker there is AXR. Um, and it's, it's uh, uh, just as a background, they, they're large landowners. They own 18,000 acres of land in a city called Rio Rancho, New Mexico. They've uh, owned it for a long time. The company essentially founded the town back in the uh, late 70s and, and early 80s. Um, and it, it, it does a fairly good job of, of showing the, the companies we look at. Um, uh, early on, the uh, company all, always owned assets there. They, they, they had their own kind of publishing media business early on with, with uh, certain buildings and assets in, in Florida. And uh, they also have several assets in in. Colorado, including a, a residential uh, development in a town called Brighton, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, and they had some commercial land in a suburb called Parker, Colorado. And so, uh, uh, we, I think it kind of highlights the, the process we we did initially. We, uh, I had a conversation with the CFO. Later, set up um, visits to. Uh, uh, meet with the company and see the land in Rio Rancho. And I made a number of trips there over time. And uh, over time, it built a, a, a sizable position. We were one of the top holders. And uh, I, uh, I think um, just from a land standpoint, did a lot of work in, in evaluating the company's land position, the, the optionality available with it, and uh, uh, trying to do a lot of work just in Rio Rancho. So I met with city officials and different developers and different home builders and things like that to try to understand the market. And, and in general, the, the view was that uh, it's a land ownership is, um, the, the land ownership they held um, should be a significant store of value. And the ability to monetize that is cyclical in nature, depending on the housing market. So sold a whole lot of land in, in uh, call it, 2005, 2006, um, 
2007, and then not very much land from 2009 through call it 2015. Um, but uh, essentially what the company does is they're a land developer and uh, they, they've expanded into the home building operations as well. But um, they'll, they'll take raw land, get it permitted, um, develop that, put in the curbs and gutters and sell it to, to home builders. And, um, and based on, uh, I guess our team's visits to, to the city, it's, it's not a ghost town. It's a, a very business friendly area of New Mexico. Where we saw a lot of potential growth and a lot of people moving there. It's a, a close suburb of, of Albuquerque. It's, Albuquerque is about 15 minutes away and Santa Fe is about uh, 50 minutes away. Rio Ranch is a town of about city of about a hundred thousand people. So based on that, um, uh, the company had a new uh, new president and eventually CEO come in, and uh, we thought his process of allocating capital was good, and a big improvement of, of what had been there before. Uh, we thought there were improvements in the board of directors, and um, yeah, I guess during uh, the onset of COVID, the, uh, the the stock fell pretty sharply. Um, at one point, was uh, traded down to four or four fifty at the time. It was a thirty-two million market cap. They probably had ten million of net cash, and we got eighteen thousand acres of land. And so uh, uh, we increased the, the position fairly substantially then, and, and it took some time. But um, uh, and it later became pretty apparent that the housing market would be a big beneficiary of uh, a low interest rate environment where people were working from home and looking to uh, uh, relocate from from large expensive cities to. And um, the company was also able to monetize um, some valuable buildings they had in Florida. They, they sold off their uh, media business and, um, and uh, were able to generate a, a large amount of cash. And uh, since that time, the, the company's repurchased probably 40% of their outstanding stock, uh, still maintain a very strong balance sheet and have been able to do some development work in commercial properties while taking very low risk that we think has really increased the value of it. Uh, stock uh, uh, doesn't trade that much, but um, current value, it's about a 65 million market cap, a 65 million enterprise value. Um, uh, we think on uh, uh, a run rate basis, they can, in a normalized housing environment, they can generate uh, free cash flow north of $6 million a year on kind of a run rate basis with uh, the opportunity to monetize certain commercial parcels. Uh, in, in much bigger size in a time period that we're not able to predict, but um, uh, they can bring in uh, much more sizable cash flows than what the, the run rate for housing is. Uh, we think they'll be good allocators of capital. They're, they're conservative, and um, it's uh, been a nice success story for us. And, uh, it's provided a good return for our investors. So uh, overall, it, it's, it fits some old clean balance sheet um, where uh, the company Use any cash flow to pay down an outstanding debt, build the cash balance, and, and then reallocate that to repurchasing stock. A margin of safety, we think uh, the land's not going anywhere, that it will appreciate in value over time and uh, provide uh, a chance to monetize that as well. And uh, in the event um, there is a downturn, uh, the value of the land will, will fall, at least temporarily, as there are less development opportunities available, but uh, with cyclicality, the thing will change over time as well. And uh, uh, we're able to uh, think long-term and gain cyclicality. Um, it's a 
an overview of a company that um, is somewhat typical for us. Gotcha. All right. Well, you know, we're, we're pretty much, well, firstly, thank you for that. And, and again, thank you for you yeah, know, I, everything that you forgot really- my. I forgot my disclaimer there as well, but uh, we um, I, I don't recommend that to, to anyone that's in uh, <laughs> our positions change. Uh, we, we do currently own APRA right now, but uh, all investors should do their own work and their, their own diligence. And we don't make uh, any recommendations, uh, but um, hopefully uh, can that can be one part of, of the information people utilize when, when making their own investment decisions. Very good. You know, our, everyone's compliance is going to be so happy with that. Perfect. Uh, as uh, as they should be. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, to close this out here today, because, uh, you know, I've, I've, you've, you've given us so much. Um, what, what advice would you have for new investors that are looking at microcap stocks right now? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I guess I go back and say everyone's different and. Uh, everyone has different expertise and different different abilities and skills and weaknesses. And uh, for early investors, I I listen to what a whole lot of people have to say, and uh, there are parts that will resonate um, and parts that don't make sense. And uh, uh, with the goal, if if you're an early investor, of finding out what type of investor you are and what your individual strengths and weaknesses are, I think listening to others can can really someone determine uh, what type of investor they are and then to be true to that. Um, and uh, while you can list any number of investors historically that have done amazing, that uh, they're not you. And uh, to, to take what success stories they have that apply to you and, and utilize that and think about where they, they haven't done well and, and try to utilize that as well. So I, I'd be open and try to formulate uh, your ideas of how uh, you want to invest for the long term based on your own strengths and weaknesses. Um, in terms of the current market, I, I think it's, you know, anyone's guess where things go from here. We, we tend to be um, uh, fairly conservative in nature. And I, I think everyone knows the, the headlines out there in terms of inflation and other things. Uh, we continue, um, we, we've taken a pretty conservative path through this um, and uh, would focus on uh, companies again with with clean balance sheets and uh, be aware that things can change very quickly and uh, take a long-term approach in, in terms of companies you want to own for the long term and find uh, those companies at a price that you think uh, provides uh, uh, a good amount of upside over the long term with something you're comfortable with owning at that price, not just for um, a few months, but for the long term. So uh, we, we think the current environment should present opportunities, um, but uh, would uh, would be patient in the current environment too, as we think uh, um, there are probably some bad things yet. And that's a great place to end it. Michael, where can our audience go and find more information about you, Gate City Capital Management? I, I don't think you're on social media, but hey, if you happen to have some handles, you know, plug away. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not active there. I just, uh, we're, we tend to be pretty uh, uh, private in terms of a firm, but um, uh, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Um, we, we have a website, gatecitycap.com. There you can find uh, 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 
an email address, info at gatecitycap.com. That'll all go to me. I'm happy to interact in terms of ideas that, that people have, or uh, if they just want to ask questions, I, I do take calls. I answer the phone and uh, respond to emails. So um, uh, any uh, people can reach out to me there or there are our phone numbers there as well. And uh, yeah, I look forward to helping with any questions or comments that people might have and uh, always uh, interested in, in expanding the, um, for lack of a better word, the network I have and uh, the individuals that, that I can talk to and share good ideas with. So uh, very open to talking and uh, anyone that wants to reach out, you can send me an email or uh, give me a call. Very good. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.